You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events to get free and periodic updates to this program and our other interesting programs. Be sure to enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right side of our website, whtt.org. And now, ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's WHTT Speaks Out, we're going to entitle this Sanctions Are Precursors to War and Usually Lead to War. Now, this actually comes from a quote by Ron Paul, and Chuck Carlson has written an article that we'll reference here entitled Sanctions is Doublespeak for War Provocation. And we want to talk about the concept of sanctions. And of course, we've talked about many, many times the idea that the United States has a war-based economy and uh, our military-industrial complex needs wars. It needs to sell weapons, and we need enemies. And, of course, making sanctions on countries does a number of things, including uh, makes us not like whoever is having the sanctions because of the repeated charges. We can see examples like what's been happening with Russia. And so with that little bit of introduction, Chuck, why don't you talk a little bit about what sanctions are? Okay, so the most recent sanctions that we are hearing spoken of are the continuing ones that are being placed on Russia. And a number of people are very concerned about this. Lots of people are concerned about this. We're actually sanctioning European countries that trade with Russia, in fact, going so far as to force our allies in other countries to stop trading, for instance, with Russian oil. We also have very serious sanctions proposed against Iran, which has, I don't think, ever been, these sanctions have ever been properly lifted, even though we came to a treaty with Iran over nuclear armaments that was affirmed by the Senate and Congress and the President under President Obama. Uh, But now the talk is about abandoning that agreement and placing more and more strict sanctions on Iran. Of course, in the past, we've sanctioned many countries. If you look at our article that we've uh, published on the website called Sanctions is Doublespeak for War Provocation, And if you scroll to the bottom, you'll see a list of 30 countries that are listed by the United States State Department and other departments as being under sanctions today. It starts out with the likes of uh, counter-narcotics trafficking sanctions and Cuban sanctions, Democratic Republic of the Congo sanctions, and then finally Iran sanctions dated 10-13-2017 as of that date. Iraq, and it goes on down the list. Lebanon is next, and Libya, and and on it goes for 30 different names. These are all countries that are currently under U.S. sanction at the present time. Now, uh, in our story, what we've expressed is that sanctions are the bully's way of getting the enemy that he has picked to be his enemy to react, to take some sort of action that justifies war. 
So this is why we said that sanctions are doublespeak for provocation of wars. Uh, Ron Paul put it just a little differently. He and his excellent uh, website, which is dedicated to peace and prosperity, he states sanctions do not work. They are precursors to war and usually lead to war. And this is absolutely true. If you look at the history of all the wars that we've been in over the years, there's always been economic sanctions placed first. In our article, we use the old example that most people don't know about of the United States placing sanctions upon Japan in 1937 through 1940, the four years or so leading up to the time when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. And at the, at that time, Henry Stimson, in 1940, was appointed to be President Roosevelt's Secretary of War. They called it Secretary of War at that time. It was later changed to Secretary of Defense. But on in, in his diary, which Henry Stimson left behind, in the edition he wrote on November 25, 1941, he said, the question, this is quote, the question is how we should maneuver them, meaning Japan, into firing the first shot without allowing too much danger to ourselves, end quote. Pearl Harbor was bombed 11 days later. This account comes from the book written by the very eminent author, historian named Charles Evan Tansel, Georgetown University, in his book, The Back Door to War, quoted Henry Stimson's diary. There were also numerous other sanctions placed upon Japan at that time in various different ways, including cutting off all sales of scrap iron to Japan. Japan depended on the U.S. for scrap iron, which they used in their refineries, and a number of other sanctions. Anyway, these are all referenced in our article so the history of sanctions has been the history of drawing other people into wars by placing economic sanctions on them. And guys, can you see how this would work as a propaganda tool in our own country, placing sanctions, for instance, on Iran or Russia today? How would that make Americans feel toward those countries? Well, certainly to us is a very disturbing condition with our fellow Christians. We see so many evangelicals that actually want to go to war against Iran. From John Hagee, who has called for preemptive strike against Iran. So it, the conditioning has certainly worked, Chuck, that here Christians who are supposed to be followers of Christ and his teachings, blessed are the peacemakers, love your neighbors as yourself, even your enemy, have been conditioned to hate the Iranian government. And, oh, they will say, oh, well, we love the Iranian people. But as you point out in the article, typically the lesser fortunate people in society are the ones that are affected by these sanctions. So from the standpoint of Christianity, we have seen what we call war-willing Christians, particularly in the evangelical world, and that's really as a result of the conditioning by our media and our, our government that they 
in essence, really can't reason or even apply what they say they believe as followers of Jesus Christ. There certainly is a, a disconnect there, which is really hard to fathom. Yes, indeed. Well said. Craig, do you have any I just pulled thoughts? up an, an article from Princeton, and it's entitled The Sanctions Debate and the Logic of Choice. Again, there's, there's a lot of academic information out there on the fact that sanctions don't work, just like what you're saying, Chuck. But then the question becomes, well, why do we even do it if there's so much evidence that says it's a failed policy? Well, then you have to step back and say, well, what's the bigger picture here? And the bigger picture is like you've addressed is that we need to have a boogeyman so that the military industrial complex can have some place to try out all their new weapons and so forth and keep this machine going. Like you so eloquently said in our award-winning movie, Tragedy and the Turning, we're a war-based economy. And that's what keeps it going here. So with the sanctions, it reaffirms the resolve of the people that were being sanctioned that, yes, we are the boogeymen. And it reaffirms in the minds of the American citizens that, yes, those other guys, they're the boogeymen. And it just exacerbates the situation and elevates it to a new level where the only outcome will be some kind of conflict. And so if you understand that that's the goal, well, then the sanctions are doing exactly what they're supposed to do. Very well said, and you brought up the, the additional point. If we sanction a small country like Iraq, or in the future Iran, we've, we've already sanctioned Iraq and then destroyed it, isn't our sanctions, doesn't that become grist for their propaganda mill as well? They use that to say, look at this hateful United States, and I think you pointed that out very well, that it works to, to condition both sides toward war so that if then uh, Japan back in 1941 pulled a sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, the net Japanese are not so shocked because they've been, been conditioned to what we've been doing to them all along, cutting off their oil, cutting off their scrap iron, cutting off all kinds of things that they, they needed. And they were in, indeed at war at that time with Indochina, which was a French colony, and, and also with China. So we actually interfered, we stepped in basically in, into the war against Japan on the side of China and Indochina by embargoing the Japanese from getting things way back then. That's a war, of course, that we look back on with great favor and say that that was a just war. But Henry Stimson was plotting exactly how to pull it off and, and wrote it down in 11 days before it started. So it works both ways against both sides. It conditions all the people that can least afford the war to accept it. The poor people, the people that end up, the guys that end up fighting it, it conditions them. So the sanctions are brutal. And we now have them. Look at, where, look at who we're sanctioning now. In the past, we sanctioned Iran, a country of, what, 60 million people maybe, one fifth of our size, uh, Iraq, which is smaller, sanctioned Cuba for some 30 years. We have sanctions on Lebanon, which is a tiny place uh, of what, oh, I don't know, 15 million people or something like that. We sanctioned Libya and literally destroyed that country. We currently sanction countries like South Sudan and Somalia. And we have sanctions on part of the Ukraine, which Russia controls. So we're actually already have sanctions on Russia. So 
from these rather minor countries that we know we can destroy overnight if we want to, uh, we are now stepping up and starting to sanction Russia with 240 million people, maybe, and at the same time, their ally, Iran. So our leaders are stepping up this process of sanctions, the doublespeak of war provocation. Chuck, you forgot to mention North Korea. Of course, we've been beating the drums against North Korea, also with sanctions. But to kind of reinforce my remark about the war-willing churches, most recently, uh, Pastor Robert Jeffers of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, I believe it's the largest Southern Baptist church. Southern Baptists are about 16 million strong. It's the second largest denomination of Christians behind uh, Catholics in the United States, but he actually called to uh, kill the leader of North Korea, and he justified it using the Bible, Romans 13. Well, this leader there is a a bad guy, but, you know, it it doesn't always follow that uh, we're after the bad guys. Look what we did in the 70s when we recognized China under Mao Zedong was responsible for the deaths of 60 to 120 million people in his consolidation of power. Uh, But we saw fit to normalize relations with them at the time. So it's all how our leaders uh, are looking at the big picture. We only see the tiny picture of what our media and government wants us to understand. And just like we've talked about, we need credible enemies, people that we can hate, And, of course, the leader of uh, North Korea is very odious, and certainly his people are suffering there, but there's no justification for us going to war. The point you've just brought up is that our entire point of view, our, our whole purpose, is to try to change Christian thinking people. And we are seeing results in some of the mainline churches where they're they're siding with the pro-peace people on a lot of issues. Some some of the mainline churches are siding with the Palestinian people. They just say these people are being abused. It's unchristian to allow this. So we're seeing that in a lot of churches, but we also have so-called evangelicals by various terms. We've talked about them in our video, The Tragedy and the Turning. There are some 60 million Americans who are influenced or are members of these kind of churches fully one-fifth or one-fourth of all the voters in the United States are in churches that are thinking uh, and justifying war if it's against the right people. And if they can persuade, be persuaded that the war is against uh, people they don't like, then uh, they'll use something like Romans 13 to justify why we should yeah. uh, take out a leader. Uh, they'll suggest taking out a leader, or they'll sometimes just come out and say, we need to bomb the country. The people are evil, suggesting that the people are evil. I, I haven't heard too many national Christian leaders saying we should kill all the North Koreans because their leaders are evil, but it isn't too far a stretch to, to, to hear things like that. Chuck, that's exactly what, what happens, though. It says, who are the people that are going to be affected by this? I'm reminded of the uh, 60-minute interview of Madeleine Albright back in uh, May of 1996. And just reading a, a little excerpt of that, you know, that's when she said, 
we've heard that half a million children have died. I mean, that's more children that died in Hiroshima. And, you know, is the price worth it? The Madeleine Albright response, she says, I think that's a very hard choice, but the price, we think, the price is worth it. So the, the people who suffer, not the leaders, it's the salt of the earth population that gets decimated by these sanctions, either through famine, disease, whatever else. And even when you think about the just war theory that most evangelicals espouse, you know, that that's not against innocent civilians. And yet that is who gets punished by these sanctions. And that is so non-Christian, it's, an, it's, it's uh, 180 degrees out. Craig, in the event some people are listening to this program who've never tuned in on our website before, never lo- looked into the to our mission, which is to try to change America through our churches and our church leaders, both the evangelicals and otherwise, could you give a brief explanation of what we mean when we say a evangelical, or sometimes the term is used Christian Zionist, so that's maybe not the best term to use, but can you differentiate that a little bit for any listener who doesn't really know how to separate uh, the so-called evangelicals from the rest of Christianity? Okay, well, that's, <laughs> that's a pretty broad topic. I think I would, I would say, you know, you brought up Romans 13. I think a lot of the evangelicals, or what we talk about premillennial dispensationalists, it comes through a, a, such a literal interpretation of Scripture that they take Romans 13 and apply it that whatever a government does is okay, and it gets morphed into something that we know uh, we've got to support our country. So it becomes a nationalistic fervor with Christianity sprinkled on top of it. And then we have the whole Zionist political agenda that gets mixed in this whole thing. So it, it gets very convoluted. And so I think our, our, web, our webpage is really good at, at explaining what Christian Zionism is, how it came into being, and, and how it gets worked out in society. But basically, it is a war mentality in that we are onward Christian soldiers in the sense that we are going to take the world for Jesus, but we're going to do it with a sword. It's a very convoluted teaching of the Old Testament sprinkled in with some Christianity. And it, to me, it, it, it's a, so far away from the historic Christian teaching. It's not even I mean, funny. But it definitely mixes all this together and comes up with this nationalistic war machine that supports these wars all around the world. Very good. And in the case of the Middle East, of course, was duck soup to put over because it was sold on the idea that the state of Israel is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy and that the the countries surrounding Israel in the Middle East are bent upon destroying Israel. And, of course, that would be ungodly in the eyes of this movement. So then any war against Iraq, Iran, Syria, Lebanon, or any of the other Middle Eastern countries is justified based upon protecting God's chosen people in the state of Israel. Well, I I might point out, if anyone's interested, we mentioned our award-winning film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and Turning. It's 29 minutes, but it's very powerful. But it goes into some of the theological reasons that justify what we call Christian Zionism or this premillennial dispensationalism, as uh, Craig points out here. And uh, we have a number of resources on our website to educate one about these beliefs that 
don't represent uh, traditional Christianity. Jesus' teaching, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And so, and that's a very, very great, great place to end, I think. And uh, Tom, I want to thank you for bringing up in this discussion the the Christian factor in this issue, which is so important, so incredibly important to all of us, and so important to our country. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.